If you would open with me to Matthew chapter 14. You've got a pew Bible. I think it's located on page 820 or so, Matthew 14. I'm going to begin in verse 1, go down through the first half of verse 13. <clears throat> The Bible says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I want you to think with me for a moment just how much more interesting a story is. When you get the backstory of the villain, you know, one of the hallmarks of modern cinema is how storytellers have changed from sort of the more black and white characters of 50 years ago to a decidedly more uh, complicated guys that sometimes we relate with a little bit more. Uh, You can take, for instance, uh, the great villain from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thanos, For those who are not aware, Thanos is a great and terrible titan who seems determined to destroy Earth's greatest heroes, the Avengers. But from the beginning of the movies, he moves in the background. He only appears in these extended post-credit scenes with these ominous warnings about how he's going to stamp them all out. But you're left wondering what it is exactly this guy has as his big problem with these superheroes. Well, as the movies unfold, you find out that even Thanos' background is complicated. Turns out he's the son of a great titan and a person from childhood who was concerned with the decaying conditions of his own home planet. The problem, he surmised, was a lack of resources. There's too many people and not enough supply to keep his race alive. So, his solution? Let's just wipe out half the population and suddenly you'll have all the assets that you could possibly need. Well, of course, his his home planet didn't think too much of the idea, so they reject his plan. But as time passes, the insufficiencies catch up to his people, and his own planet decays until Thanos himself is one of the last living members. And he determines that other planets shall not suffer the same fate, so he gathers together this army to go from planet to planet, executing half the population so that they can have the hope to survive. You, You see the diabolical point, right? Thanos thinks that he's doing a good thing. He's convinced himself that while radical and hard to swallow, this is what's necessary to keep human beings from across the universe from destroying themselves. Oh, it's twisted, no doubt, but it's it's kind of an interesting commentary on people who don't really think through their solutions to life's problems. I mean, let's face it, Thanos isn't like the Joker from the old TV shows from the 60s. He's not one-dimensional. 
He's crazy for sure, but he's, but he's interesting. Well, we've come to this very interesting turning point in our story in the book of Matthew because some commentators believe that chapter 14 is the hinge of the whole book. I actually think differently for reasons we'll get to in chapter 16 in a couple weeks. But the scene that we get here in chapter 14 about the death of John the Baptist is so rich. But I want to submit to you this morning that the passage isn't so much about John the Baptist directly, but it's really about these forces that have opposed Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. You'll remember that even from Jesus' birth, these political realities surrounding his advent threaten to undo the mission that he's come to accomplish. And no other characters stand as threatening as the line of the Herods in the Gospels. Jesus' encounter with these people shows so powerfully how these power structures of Jesus' day were processing his message of the kingdom. But look, granting that, our, our rather tragic and certainly grisly scene here that we get in chapter 14 gives us a glimpse into the backstory of the real villain in King Herod. In other words, his decline shows us, as it were, I think actually warns us about dealing with these spiritual realities that Jesus is bringing. And that is that they are all matters of life and death, physically and spiritually. So what I want to do this morning is to look at this scene about Herod under three headings and maybe even get some insight into the villain in all of us. First of all, Herod's choices. Second of all, Herod's consequences. And third, I want to end with Herod's untaken path out of this particular thing. Okay, first of all, Herod's choices. Look, chapter 14 drops the reader into a storyline that contains a backstory that you need to understand in order to figure out exactly what's going on here. Uh, and be aware, this story was actually told again in Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and following. A lot of colorful detail you get in that version there. We also have to have a lot of backstory from the ancient church historian Josephus uh, on the Herods as well. So for this first point, I'm kind of cobbling some of these sources together uh, to, to what might appear to be a complicated timeline. So just bear with me for a second. First of all, which Herod are we talking about here? Well, verse 1 describes him as Herod the Tetrarch. The first thing for you to understand in this one is, this is not the Herod from the beginning of our story all the way back at Jesus' birth. That Herod was called Herod the Great. Well, this was Herod's father, right? The one that we have in our story. And it turns out that when Herod the Great died, he was left with four particular sons. Philip I, uh, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip II. Those are all of the four sons of Herod the Great. Now, I'm choosing my words carefully here. When I say that he had four sons left, uh, I mean by that that actually Herod the Great had three other sons executed for various reasons prior to his own death. So, you know, probably would have made childhood just a slightly more uh, mildly traumatic for Herod Antipas and the other children. But regardless, at Herod the Great's death, he divides up the kingdom between his four sons, between the other children. And so what happens there is at his death, you get this division so that none of them are what we would call monarchs, one ruler, but tetrarchs, uh, one of four rulers. By the way, just to add to the confusion here, there's only three that were actually ruling as tetrarchs at the time of this writing. 
But in our story, we're dealing with the third one, the second one down, Herod Antipas. And it turns out this is where it gets complicated because Antipas, it turns out, had fallen in love with his older brother's wife, whom we have named here as Herodias. By the way, that's probably not her real name. That's usually probably a royal title that was assigned to her. But Philip the, the first and Herodias had a daughter by the name of Salome. And this is where it gets a little gross. Antipas divorces his wife for no other reason than the fact that he wants to marry someone else, his brother's wife. So he does so, and he marries his sister-in-law. Ah, but here's a hot take. It turns out Herodias was actually the daughter of one of Antipas' executed older brothers. So not only was she her brother's wife, she's also his niece, Herodias was already married to her uncle, Philip II. Now she goes on to marry her other uncle, yuck. Now look, I know these stories seem unsavory to us, but just as as a matter of an aside, you have to understand what life was like in this ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, Historian Tom Holland, in his landmark book on Christian history called Dominion, makes this point very vividly that to an upper-class Roman uh, uh, citizen, high-society citizen, especially a male, that individual could do just about anything he wanted to do. Uh, He could impose his wishes sexually or otherwise on really whomever he wished, and it was just kind of understood. I make this point because you and I live in a day where we have what we think are sort of common sense moral codes like mutual consent or respect for all persons regardless of their gender or their race. But you need to realize, and Holland makes this very clear, that those values do not exist in Roman culture prior to the advent of Christian teaching. And Holland argues that you can do what you will with Jesus of Nazareth, but it can't be deemed common sense values like individual rights uh, that you and I take for granted if Christianity didn't exist. So much of what we call Western values are because of the pervasive influence of the teachings of Jesus. But you know what? I digress. The bottom line for our story here is that Herod has violated multiple Old Testament laws regarding the sanctity of marriage. And John the Baptist calls him out on it. But here's what's weird. Herod Antipas isn't completely disgusted by John's preaching. As a matter of fact, we find out from the Mark telling of the story that he's, he's kind of entertained by it. In chapter 6, verse 20 of Mark, it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Hmm. Well, look, all I want you to notice at this point is just what a complicated character Herod Antipas is. He's so interesting. Here he is getting called on the carpet, but you know what? He's kind of vaguely interested in what he has to say. Clearly, he's he's sinned, but you know what? He's also been sinned against. And here all of a sudden comes this weird little prophet to speak to him, and you can just hear Herod's internal dialogue. You know, I don't know, maybe he's just kind of saying something I should listen to. But you know what? Look, John, I've got problems of my own. And let's face it, my wife doesn't like you. But I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to have you thrown in jail for saying what you have. Look, I've got to get some peace around my house. Relate to that at all? Which actually sets it up very nicely to see the choices of what Herod has done, what it has produced in him, which brings me to my second point, and that is Herod's consequences. 
I hope you see how much more interesting and gross, of course, it makes this story because it's a birthday party, right? And everybody's wasted. And who starts dancing for them but Antipas, what, grandniece Salome? Now look, the Bible very thankfully doesn't spell out as luridly as Hollywood almost certainly would have. But trust me, there's every reason to assume that this was just as gross as it appears. This was a sexual, drunken, debauched festivity with all the immoral trappings. And of course, in a stupor, Antipas begins to flirt with his stepdaughter and promises her anything that she wants. So, she goes to her mother and begins to ask for what she should ask for. To which her mother says, aha, now I got him. You tell him that I want the head of John the Baptist. Finally, I can shut that guy up. So when Salome pitches this to Antipas, he's sad, right? He likes John the Baptist. He's he's interested in him. He's hearing something mildly compelling. Oh, good grief. There's all these people here. This is a very big party. I mean, how would it look if I didn't say face here? So he caves and he delivers John's head to the party. Gross. It's a disgusting story. But the first thing that has to be noted is that Matthew is clearly implicating Herod Antipas for his cowardliness. But what I want to do just in the second point is to unpack exactly what we see in Herod and what his life choices have brought him by way of consequences. I've got three. The first one is this. He's gotten weirdly superstitious. Do you notice that? Look at verse 2. Herod thinks that miracle-working Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, no doubt to torment him. And what is that about? I think what we're seeing is a man who is struggling with his conscience. And what's happening when your conscience begins to stir is something begins to go on. That is, you begin to sense that you're being worked on by something divine. Your your, your thoughts are called off to the eternal metaphysical things. Suddenly there's a sense of shame, a lack of being prepared. It sort of hits you in the gut. You know you're not ready to face God. If during that time you're exposed to Jesus, you know that he is both the problem of your suffering, but also the solution or something about him. So what do you do? Well, Herod's response was to turn to superstition. And if if you think that's too strange, I think this happens all the time in Christian circles. I think there's few things that are weirder than a Christian addiction to goofy religious gimmickry. We know something's not right. So instead of following Jesus' advice, which we'll get to in the last point, we start, doing all, we start to turn blessing food in restaurants as magic. We, we, we pray magic prayers in the hopes that they'll promise prosperity to us. In other words, we're addicted to all these little tricks to satisfy what's going on in us. But of course, it never works. I feel like I've witnessed some 30 years of ordained silliness and Christian faddishness about the latest thing that's going to transform your life. So we get superstitious. Secondly, we also see that he's torn up inside. I find this interesting. You know, a stirred conscience will always result in this weird sensation of being simultaneously repelled by Jesus because he's making you admit things about yourself that you don't want anybody else to see, but also very strangely drawn to him as well. I mean, why did Herod like to hear from John? Was it entertainment? Was he like a court jester? 
jester. Or maybe he was a fresh uh, uh, air of honesty among his sort of political world. Regardless, when the conscience begins to stir, we, bad, we had better listen to it because you can only live in that torture for so long. But thirdly, what we see coming out of Herod is that he's turned cowardly. I mean, what a, what a pathetic sight. I mean, you are willing to let this man die so that you can save face at your perverted party? How is that possible? Well, it's not really that mysterious when you realize that everything to which you pledge your allegiance is ultimately going to enslave you. I mean, I can show some sympathy, I think, for Herod, because who knows what it was that he saw from his demonic father that led him to worship people's opinions so much that he does what he does here. Of course, it doesn't exclude what he's done. But the point is that Herod is a slave, a couple of weeks ago, the 20-somethings group that we started had a discussion about some readings uh, from a philosopher by the name of Henry Nouwen. Nouwen is often quoted as saying that spiritual slavery will always come by defining yourself by three things, what you do, what you have, and what other people think about you. I think that's a searching quote, isn't it? I mean, how much of your daily worries are wrapped up in those three things? My work, my possessions, and my reputation. But Matthew is showing us this is a cowardly slavery. I, and, and it's led me to sort of think that I wonder, if, I wonder if we have stopped talking about our conscience as much as we should. When I was a child, I had this vivid memory of my pastor telling a story that he had dug up about an ancient myth that allegedly existed among Native American peoples about the conscience they said that inside the heart of every man was a very sharp triangle. And when the man did something wrong, the triangle would turn and literally scrape his insides. Those were the pangs of conscience. But if we ignore those turns for too long, eventually the triangle begins to turn into a circle, having been worn down by the repetition it's a little wonder that by the end of Matthew's story, Herod Antipas shows up at Jesus' trial, mocking Jesus and wanting him to do some tricks for him. In other words, Herod's triangle eventually became a circle. Which leads me to the final thought, and that is Herod's, albeit untaken, path out of what he could have taken. Because you see the moral of the story, right? Don't keep violating your conscience like Herod did. But I think that deserves more development because if you think about the fundamental message of John the Baptist preaching, it makes sense. You remember back from Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, when, when John the Baptist came along, you summarized his message, his ministry in one sentence, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to sum up all of John's ministry, it could be summed up in that one word, Repentance. And of course, we could write volumes on the true nature of biblical repentance. But this morning, I just want to focus on one thing that's been, for whatever reason, weighing on my own mind. Because repentance literally means changing your mind. But the question is, changing your mind about what? I think some of us think we're supposed to change our mind about how much willpower we have and just dredge up more than you have now. But I think what John is sort of describing about here is a change from defensiveness to humility. Can we think about that for a second in its relationship to repentance? Should a Christian ever really be defensive 
when confronted with, well, really, confronted really with any sin. Granted, we may not even be guilty of the thing we're being confronted with, but can't we all own the truth that while I may not have committed the exact offense that you're approaching me with, it's not because I lack the talent to do so. That is, should we not take every confrontation with a posture that says, you know, I don't know, but you know what? I'll think about that. I don't want to get bowed up around you about this. And that ends up being an expression of humility to people, doesn't it? But here's the thing I think we rarely consider. Because, you know, one of the other forms of the word humility is the word humiliation. Look, confessing your sin, admitting that you were wrong, owning to your spouse or to your family or to your boss or whoever that you messed something up is humiliating. It hurts. It drags on you. And so my question this morning that I want us to finish with is simply this. How do you pull something like that off? You think about the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther who hung up the 95 theses up on the Wittenberg uh, uh, door. The very first of those theses says this, that when God willed his people to be saved, he understood and willed that the entire Christian life be one of repentance. Hmm. So that all of our life would be known. How in the world do you stay perpetually humble, <laughs> perpetually humiliated? Last year, David French wrote a story from British history telling about a guy by the name of John Profumo. Born about 100 years ago, English aristocrat, a soldier, a politician, very much decorated uh, soldier in World War II, even landed on the shores of Normandy, rose up as a great political leader in the 50s until in the 60s, he was caught having an affair with another woman, which was bad enough as it was, except for the fact that at the exact same time, he was having another affair with a female Soviet naval attache. Well, when he was first confronted about it, he lied to Parliament, but eventually ended up confessing. And in the embarrassment and the shame of that moment during the confession, he vowed that he would never try to enter public life again. So what did he do? Well, French says that what he did was he began to dedicate his life to a quiet service for the poor. That is, he went to work for the poor in the east end of London, sort of starting by washing dishes in a hostel. And after washing dishes, he raised a lot of money for Toynbee Hall, a charitable organization there on the, located in London. But what's interesting for it all is none of what he did was he doing for show. He never sought to be reestablished in the public's trust again. But this is what's crazy. He was reestablished in the public's trust, being awarded for his service to the poor by the 1970s. 20 years later in the 1990s, he was actually seated at the same table with Queen Elizabeth at a, a dinner honoring Margaret Thatcher. And in 2006, when he finally passed away, there were many numerous people came and eulogized him when he was uh, at the end of his life. So my question this morning is simply this. Where did, where did he get the instinct to act this way? French didn't elaborate on Profumo's uh, spiritual state. But I do know this, that when Jesus was crucified... Jesus did so while he was humiliated. I mean, worse, it was all for trumped-up charges that he didn't do. I mean, think about this. Jesus was there, executed in a garbage dump for something that he didn't do. 
that he knew he didn't do, almost certainly, by the way, naked as he was. And yet, as Jesus sort of rolled around in that humiliation, God chose to use that moment to raise him up to the throne of the universe, not because he was self-aggrandizing, but because he was being obedient. I'm going off script this morning. So danger, danger. (laughs) Things that Les might regret. Y'all, I mentioned this back in October, but, I, but it's, it's, it fits way too well where we are. I've been battling with myself all morning. Back in August, I copied a sermon from a Bible teacher, um, uh, uh, Mackie, Tim Mackie from the Bible Project people. And then two other sermons I borrowed very heavily from two other ones at the same time. Now, that's actually not that unusual for me to do that. I see myself as a curator of resources. And I've done it maybe at least two or maybe three times since I've been your pastor for the last five and a half years. But in those other times, I always cited who I borrowed from. And in those particular cases at the beginning of this semester, I didn't do it. I intended to, I wanted to, and I wish that I had a really good explanation in front of you for why I didn't do it. I just didn't. Um... And I want you to know that your leadership, your session has been working with me on that particular issue. Um, and I'll be the first to say that it's, it's tiresome. They've got me writing letters and forming policies and things like that. By the way, incredibly gracious, by the way. Uh, your, your leadership has been unbelievably gracious to me in working through this particular issue. But you need to hear me. I'm horribly embarrassed by it. Horribly embarrassed. And for some reason, it all came crashing down on me this week. (laughs) I really don't know what it was about Thanksgiving, having my family around me, when all of a sudden I just was at war inside myself. And I realized, and it took me when I pulled the sermon out on Friday to start doing some polishing and practicing and whatever else. I just don't like you knowing about my failures. I really don't. It is humiliating for me. I've got the prickly heat even right now as we're talking. But here's the thing that gets me up here and the thing that would just, as I was running errands on Friday where I thought, I don't know if I'm going to say this. Here's the thing that keeps me doing this is I am convinced at this stage of two things. Number one is this. The way up in Jesus' world is down. The way in to Jesus' world is to find yourself on the outs. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. I literally read a, read a tweet this morning with someone who had said, look, the way of Jesus is weakness is strength. Humility is glory. Sacrifice is victory. And giving is gain. It's all upside down in his world. And there's no other reason for somebody to to do this or that. Second thing is this. Jesus really struggled with this, which makes my Thanksgiving holiday better. (laughs) Look, Look, this is why I ended with that verse 13. Look what it says. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Do you think about this? Jesus just lost his cousin. He just lost his first cousin to, to, to an a insecure, conscience-riddled tyrant. It hurt him. And so he had to go be alone by himself for a little while. Why? Because he knows that that's the path that he's going to have to take. 
In other words, repentance is not easy. It's not easy to stand in the face of the people that you care, that you want very much so to respect you and to own things. But could you just take some encouragement from this? And it's what I've drawn encouragement from in the last 24 hours. When Jesus was processing his mission, everything that he was doing, he did for you. And he did for me. On the cross, Jesus faces capital H humiliation so that all of our embarrassments can be lowercase h humiliations, things that we can survive. Because that's what he came to do. We get this little story of Herod, Herod Antipas, this, this backdrop of this villain who is such a tragic case. He had so many opportunities to own what he was doing. He had the very voice of John the Baptist in his ear, and he chose the wrong way. The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is what, what, what path will we choose as a church? Will we be those who, like Martin Luther, will be described as those who actually Repentance just marks our life, that we walk in it, that we walk with it. Will that be who we are? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if it's going to be who we are, then you are going to have to lead us into it because we know enough about ourselves to know that we can't be trusted to ourselves. And so we do ask, Father, that we would be um, mindful, that we would see in the face of Herod and in this story uh, a cautionary tale of highest order, and that you would lead us into the grace of repentance. Uh, Father, not just for instances here and there, but that we would carry that around as a posture. And there would be those who would be open with one another in that particular way. But your spirit has to do it. Would you fall on us and lead us into it as we close in singing? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.